Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. Excited for this week's episode and next week's. We are sitting down talking with Dr. Ashley Suwa, one of my really good friends from residency. We trained together at the University of Chicago. We started as interns back in 2014. And since then, our paths have diverged and then come back together. We've stayed in close touch and contact because we were actually really good friends. She is going to be sharing her journey into medicine during this week's episode, and then tune in next week to hear more specifically about transplant surgery and some of the incredible operations that she does and her training. And if you're interested in transplant surgery, you know somebody that is, definitely tune in to this week's episode and and more specifically next week's episode. 2024 is starting off with a bang. First up is the uh, Cat Williams Club Shay Shay interview. I actually watched it last week. My wife and I sat down all two hours and 45 minutes. Crazy. Never would have thought I would have watched a podcast that long. I typically try to shoot for like a 30 or 45 minute uh, episode length, but this was a very long video and it was well worth the watch. A lot of drama and uh, Cat Williams, man, you know, a lot of mixed feelings. He said a lot of stuff um, and that, that touched on Hollywood and some of the behind the scenes, how it works allegedly. So definitely uh, something worth getting into if that's your cup of tea. In more serious news, um, you know, you probably are aware, you heard Dr. Claudine Gray, the president of Harvard University, resigned shortly after the new year. She'd been embroiled in a pretty vicious um, kind of smear campaigns, alleged allegations of plagiarism. There was um, issues taken with some of the the commentary she had in the Senate regarding free speech on the campus of Harvard University and ultimately ended up in her resigning from her position. You know, it's such a complex, complicated situation, different angles. One of the things that was brought to me by um, some of the guys that I I chat with on a regular basis, one of them shared, I think it was... uh, I think it was uh, Bernard Ashby, shared a article that was written in the Politico. And it was entitled, We sat down with the conservative mastermind behind Claudine Gay's ouster. And it tells this ridiculously graphic, cold, calculated story about how this, this person, Christopher Rufo, is the person that kind of focuses, this article is focused on, and how he plotted and was very instrumental in um, getting Dr. Gray um, removed from office. I think it's worth reading. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it really shows how detailed and meticulous some political parties and political op- operatives are in enforcing and accomplishing their agenda. I had to look it up. I don't really do politics like that, but I had to dig into this. So Christopher Rufo, he is a conservative political commentator. He's a filmmaker and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He gained attention for his focus on issues related to critical race theory, identity politics, and cultural issues He's been an advocate for what he sees as a more balanced and conservative approach to these topics 
particularly with regards to education. As mentioned, he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute for Policy Research is a conservative think tank based in New York City. In this article, uh, this gentleman's quoted as saying um, or acknowledging that for Dr. Gay's resignation, it was a result of a coordinated and highly organized conservative campaign. He's quoted as saying it shows a successful strategy for the political right, how we have to work the media, how we have to exert pressure, and how we have to sequence our campaigns in order to be successful. End quote. He later goes on in this article to say, or he's asked, how much credit do you think you deserve for Gay's resignation? He replies, I've learned that it never hurts to take the credit for something, take the credit because sometimes people don't give it to you. But this really was a team effort that involved three primary points of leverage. First was the narrative leverage. This was done primarily by, by himself and a couple others that he names. Second was the financial leverage, which was led by Bill Ackman, who is a... Uh, big-time donor for Harvard. He's kind of all over Twitter right now, um, causing some other drama with MIT and other groups. And then finally, there was the political leverage, which was really leveled or led by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who had a, quote-unquote, masterful performance with Dr. Gay at the uh, uh, Cong congressional hearings. When you put those three elements together, narrative, financial, and political pressure, and you squeeze hard enough, you see the results that we got today which was the resignation of America's most powerful academic leader, I think that this result speaks for itself. And again, I usually don't get too involved in politics, but it's always uh, helpful. And it is, at times like these, it's kind of necessary to know what we are up against, what our ideals of diversity, equity, inclusion, advocating for underrepresented minorities in medicine for our patients. You know, this is what we're up against. Something as simple as trying to, to decrease healthcare disparities gets uh, misconstrued and is attacked on a large political stage, a very calculated attack, which um, ultimately was extremely effective in um, Dr. Gray's resignation. So something to keep an eye on, you know, get out and vote. But a lot of us are enrolled in these institutions of higher education, right? All these medical schools and whether you're at a state school, whether you're at a private school, whether you're at Ivy League or community college, there's some component of, of politics that you may not be privy of and may not be relevant to you depending on the stage you're at in your training. But at some point, you know, there, there may be opportunities to become more involved with that kind of not even local government, but um, institutional leadership your hospitals, these these committees are where a lot of these different um, situations play out. And it's important to try to be involved. But at the, at the same time, you know, understand that these institutions weren't made for people like us. We're not protected. And even though you feel that you may have made it, all of that can change um, in an instance. I was talking with Dr. Uh, Daryl Gray. He's a wealth of knowledge. He, he made a comment similar to the effect that... Um, you know, being a, a minority in these fields, 
the more we ascend, um, the more accolades we attain, the larger the target is on our back to where, you know, if somebody wanted to take us down for, you know, whatever it is that we are accomplishing and, and working towards equality or whatever agenda items it is, you know, we have this large target that can go after you for these days, you know, DEIs being weaponized, your uh, sexual orientation, um, all these things uh, are, are, are what we should be aware of. And then this, you know, rolls into if people are getting persecuted for the the papers that they're writing, you know, we're not even talking about the lower hanging fruit of why so many black physicians are are counseled or dismissed from their jobs or residents are, are fired or dismissed from residency because any of these kind of low-hanging fruits or accidents or, or things that we um, don't, quote-unquote, excel in um, can be grounds for termination from these programs or from these institutions. And, and again, we are not protected. So it's important to know what you're up against, know what the stakes are, and then just keep getting out there, doing the best we can for our patients, doing our best we can that we, to, to learn more, to be excellent clinicians, excellent physicians, um, excellent members of our community. And uh, and again, just, just being aware of these situations and, and how they play out. But the, the reason you, you tuned in this week was likely not to hear about politics and Cat uh, Williams interviews, but we want to hear uh, Dr. Ashley Sua and her story. So we're going to jump into Super special guest on today, Dr. Ashley Sua, my good friend and transplant surgeon. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I had to wait till you finished your training. I know. That's like, what, 50 years? So. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You were one of the first people I met as a intern at the University of Chicago. Yes. I mean, you were my first friend that was not a surgical trainee. Yeah. Go oh, way, yeah. way back to what, 2014? 2014. And like early on too, like, I don't know, July, August. Yeah. You like introduced yourself and I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> He's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. And we've obviously stayed very close over the years from residency to trips out of the country to mm-hmm. you finishing fellowship. And now we've both kind of got to a point in our lives where we're done finally and just working. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just grateful for the relationships that I've had throughout training. I feel like obviously where you train and your training is important. You know, who your mentors are, what you're learning, you know, the type of patients that you're exposed to, but really the relationships that you have throughout your training, I feel like that's what really is the fiber of, you know, who you end up becoming at the end of the journey, you know? And I think what helps most of us complete the journey and stay whole throughout the journey too. Yeah. Absolutely. Can't do it on your own. And I'm so excited to jump into your journey. Can you start by telling us your pathway to medicine? When did you decide you wanted to become a doctor? Yeah, so 
Probably maybe high school is when I got into athletic training. So I was very overweight in high school, actually. And I tried out for the soccer team and didn't make the soccer team because like I couldn't run the mile. And my next door neighbor at the time, yeah, was an athletic trainer at our high school. And she was like, oh, well, you know, if you can't play the sport, then at least you can get involved in, you know, taking care of the patients. And she had a a deep love for science. So that was something that we shared. And I became an athletic trainer in ninth grade and did that all four years of high school. And then actually got to shadow some family friends who were involved in medicine. I have an uncle and I say uncle with quotes because in the Caribbean, like any adult who is a family friend who's known you since you were a kid is your aunt or your uncle. So one of my uncles is in Leesburg. He's an orthopedic surgeon and I shadowed him and got to watch a lot of orthopedic surgeries, you know, operations that were done on athletes. And so it coincided with the care that I was providing for some of the athletes in high school. And so when I went to college, that was something that I wanted to pursue as well. So I went to Florida State and actually was an athletic trainer there. And I really loved that we got to scrub on our athlete surgeries, taking them from the injury on the sideline got to watch their operations, help them recover from their injuries and operations, and then get them back on the sidelines. And so I think in college, that's when that relationship between the athlete and the athletic trainer really drove me to want to do that on a higher level. And so some of my classmates who were athletic trainers went into PT. Some of them went on to be athletic trainers for professional athletes, or some of them worked in high schools when they completed their training. And then some of us went on to go to medical school. And so um, when I went to medical school, I knew that I wanted to take care of people. And I actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician. And it wasn't until that last month of third year that when I did surgery, it was my very last rotation that I fell in love with surgery. I actually was terrified of my surgery rotation because of things that I had heard from classmates. I went to Indiana University And a lot of them would be like, Ashley, we didn't even eat lunch. We had to steal patient ice cream. (laughs) Surgeons don't talk to their patients and they're mean and they don't teach us anything. It was not true. Um, I actually found the complete opposite. And the residents that I worked with, I wanted to be just like them. They were so capable, so confident, and they taught me the most. I learned more internal medicine, radiology, pathology, anatomy, everything kind of came together on my surgical rotation. And I think aside from that, really seeing the relationship between the surgeon and the patient and how much the patients trusted the surgeons that I watched and even being a student surgeon, how much the patients trusted me and allowed me to be in the OR with them and checking on them first thing in the morning and the last thing in the evenings. And it was just a very intimate medicine. And I really fell in love with how 
the surgeons held themselves accountable for everything and really pushed themselves to be their best for the patients. It was kind of a no-brainer at that point. It was scary because I had planned to be an outpatient pediatrician at that yeah. time. Thankfully, those same residents that I really admired really took me under their wing and said, here are some places I think you should apply. When you go and ask for your letter of recommendation from the chair and the program director, this is what you need to wear. This is what you should say. I mean, they really set me up to succeed. And those same residents to this day, both of them are my big brothers and I still talk to them about everything and throughout residency, throughout fellowship. And now as a junior faculty member, I still ask them for help and they're still guiding me today. Well, yeah. well who are they and, and where what are they doing? Yeah, so Jeremy Davis is a surgical oncologist. He's um, actually at the NIH and does a lot of um, gastric cancer research. Is married to his wife, who they were together at IU, and they have three beautiful kids. And they're on the East Coast. And then Bradford Kim is also a surgical oncologist, HPB. He and his wife Taylor. Taylor is a pediatric hematologist. They just moved to California recently with. With their daughter Vera. And yeah, they're both incredible leaders in their fields and have just been great examples for me. That's incredible. And you met them your third year of medical school. So so people are usually geared up to already match into something, but you change course. Correct. And actually I met, so I met Jeremy when I was a third year medical student, like a month away from being a fourth year. And Brad Kim, wow. I met while I was doing my sub-eye as a fourth year. So I think that was in June or July of my fourth year. So like my first month of my fourth year of med school. So I really had nothing organized for surgical residency application. And they just met with me and said, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Like I said, I mean, everything from when you go to ask for your letter, you need to have these things prepared. You need to wear a suit. You know, every interaction is an interview. They really just set me up to succeed before the cases. Brad would give me tips on make sure you read this, know the steps of the operation. Yeah, they, I'll never forget how much they helped me then. But as I mentioned, even to this day, they've helped me so much and continue to guide me throughout this life of being a surgeon. So, hey, I got to lean into that because one, you were the type of medical student that approved themselves and that sought the appropriate guidance and, and was easy to mentor. You, you, you're an incredible person. But for the residents that are listening or attendings, like knowing that there are certain times where you can pour into medical students or, or residents and help them get to that next level is so important that we should all be supportive of the folks that are coming after us. Absolutely. And I mean, I tell trainees today, one of the easiest things you can do is just be teachable. So being enthusiastic, being prepared, being excited to take care of patients, being a team player. Nobody expects you to know everything. You know, if you knew everything, there wouldn't be anything for us to teach you. But I think really being genuinely excited to learn, to work hard, I think that's 
pretty easy to do, in my opinion, whether you're interested in surgery or not for those who are medical students or for surgical residents, whether you're on a rotation that you enjoy. If you are going to be a transplant surgeon and maybe you're on a a rotation that you're saying, oh, this is not in my future, there are still aspects of every rotation that you can take something away that will help you in your future. Even if it's just interacting with a specific patient population, learning a suturing technique, learning how to handle a specific tissue. I think there's always something you can gain throughout your training. And when you have the attitude of being teachable, coachable, I think all of Those of us who are there to teach you something are excited to pour into you. We can tell when someone is disengaged and not interested. And I think in those situations, it can be a little dangerous because once you can tell someone isn't interested, then it's very easy to say this may not be someone that I'm really going to spend very much time with or look for opportunities to share with them. So yeah, just being teachable and enthusiastic about whatever the day presents, I think is very easy to do. And I think will be a very easy way to succeed and have people want to teach you things and make sure you're a part of whatever's going on. Yeah, I want to tap into your incredible knowledge and expertise because you applied to general surgery residency. You've applied to extremely competitive transplant fellowships, you applied for jobs. Looking back, what what would you look for in a general surgery or, or I guess for anybody, a resident, a residency program? What really stuck out, helped your career now that you're on the back end? What should folks be looking to, looking out for that that really matters in the grand scheme of things? So I think where you're applying matters as well. The culture of the institution, the culture of the program is important. And different programs have different values and value systems. So they weigh things differently. I think if you're looking to be at an academic surgical program, usually we're looking at everything in your application. So you want to be a well-rounded individual. I think being a well-rounded person is beneficial in general, but people are going to be looking, number one, I'll just tell you my value system, because I think (laughs) we all place value on different things. For me, when I'm looking at an applicant, I'm very impressed by consistency with passions. So if I see there's a medical student who's been involved in a project for a year, two years, three years, all four years, I know, okay, this is something this person is committed to. It's something that they're passionate about. If someone is able to participate in research where they're contributing to the field in that way, but they're also making time to serve the community in a meaningful way, and they're able to talk about their involvement in research and mentorship, community service. These are things that I I think speak on someone's, again, dedication to the field and their dedication to serving 
others. I personally think being a physician is the number one customer service job. The patient is the most important person. And so if I see that you're looking to contribute to the field while you're also serving patients in the community and I just think to me that's very impressive. I also place a lot of value on what is said by others about an individual. So whether it's a letter of recommendation or comments that are made from the gynecologist that you rotated with or the neurologist that you rotated with, obviously I, I want to hear what the surgeons that trained you think about you. Those are things that are also very impressive to me. I also really enjoy interviewing the candidates and hearing directly from the candidate about things they're passionate about. I think the questions that I'm asked about our program and relationships and team dynamics, those are things also that I think tell me a lot about someone's thinking. So it's one thing to think about what the program will offer the candidate, but I think also when a candidate wants to know what program can offer to them. I think that is also something that speaks to a level of maturity, you know, and that someone is insightful about their needs as a trainee. I think that's also very impressive to me, but there are a whole host of things that candidates bring to a program, but there are also things that the program should be offering to the candidate. And so I think There's a balance of being impressed by someone's application and then hearing from them firsthand, I think, is also something that for me, I I really enjoy hearing about what someone is looking for in their training. And I think when they're able to ask, what can I offer them and me meaning an institution, a training program, I think that's a level of maturity that is impressive because I think... Trainees should always be thinking about themselves, you know, and their what they need in order to be healthy and successful throughout their training. The answer, one that pays dividends no matter what you're interviewing for, whether it's residency fellowship and onward for life. Mm-hmm. We're going to switch gears and I got to ask you, how many black women transplant surgeons do we have in the United States? So there are 12 that I know of and I'm well and I'm number 13. Yep, yes. you heard it right. She is the 13th black woman transplant surgeon in the US that we know of and next week on the Black Daughters podcast we are going to hear a lot more of her story and what it's like to be a transplant surgeon, some of the things that she had to overcome along the way and you know it's super inspiring things to learn from whether you know you're interested in transplant surgery or you know somebody that is or maybe you have been affected by um, a medical condition that would lead to, to transplantation thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the black doctors podcast we're here because representation matters